Hello, I am John McAlevey, and this is The Quadcast. I launched this podcast back in April, and though it is mainly for and about folks like me who have had their lives affected by a spinal cord injury, it is really for anyone who just wants to be inspired. My hope is that this program can become your weekly 30 to 45-minute session of OT and PT for the soul. And in that regard, we need more listeners. <laughs> this show can be found on the following pod host sites, Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, iHeartRadio, Overcast, Podchaser, SoundCloud, Spotify, and Stitcher. According to the National Spinal Cord Injury Statistical Center, as of 2018, did you know that the number of people living with spinal cord injuries in the United States was estimated to be approximately between 247,000 to 358,000? That, my friends, is too many. But if you double that number, you have the amount of ears that just might find the content delivered here informative and beneficial. So let's get the word out. Okay, that's my public service announcement for this week. Before we get into today's program, which I am very excited for, I want to thank last week's guest, Joe Fabio. I so enjoyed our trip down memory lane, even the part with my not-so-favorite nickname. I hope you were able to take something from Joe's comeback story. It does not have to be a life-altering injury that causes pain, anger, and strife in your world, just something that has you off your game. I use the phrase, time heals all wounds, with regard to his story, and I really think it does. Now, I am a big acronym guy, and if you take the first letter of each word in that phrase, you get the word THAW. Imagine that. A quick look at definitions for that word, and you get to make or become friendlier or more cordial over time. Hmm, I think I just might get t-shirts printed up for the newly injured folks I look forward to speaking with as a peer counseling coordinator. My guest today is not newly injured. We have that and much, much more in common. Unbeknownst to us, we grew up one town away from each other, me in Short Hills and him in Livingston. We were both avid sports fans, had wonderful fathers who were coaches, loved the Jersey Shore and all it has to offer, and music, although his genre is a lot louder and harder than mine. Little did we know that we would share something else in common one day, and that is room 124, bed 1 on the West Wing at Kessler Institute for Rehabilitation in West Orange, New Jersey. I got there first, 1992, and he arrived and took my spot two years later. I will never forget the first time we actually met. I was sitting in vocational director Teresa Keegan's office trying to figure out what to do with my life when all of a sudden the door bursts open and this whirling dervish in a power wheelchair with a pinwheel on the back spinning a thousand miles an hour barges in and blurts out a comment that I cannot repeat on the air. I had no idea who he was, but I loved his style immediately. That was probably 25 years ago, and today Bill Purdy is such a good friend that he is the house photographer for my family's business, the Eastern Produce Council, is personally responsible for helping me purchase the laptop computer that I typed this introduction on, and most importantly is one half of what we affectionately refer to ourselves as the Quad Squad. 
Bill is an amazing guy, someone who has not let his SCI affect him in any way, shape, or form. In fact, it's almost like he never had one. Following this brief commercial interlude, you are in for a real treat because my friend, the great Bill Purdy, is here. All right, he's on the telephone, but you get my point. We'll be right back. This is my new best friend, Esther. She might look like any normal, playful puppy, but Esther's being raised to become a canine companions for independence assistance dog for a person with a disability. To get there, she needs lots of love and care and attention, plenty of exercise, and good eating habits so that she can live a long and healthy life for her future family. And she needs to spend tons of time socializing, learning basic commands like sit and stay, and taken to fun places with lots of distractions so that she can learn to cope in every situation. All of this will prepare Esther for more professional training to become a real assistance dog and a life helping a person with a disability to live more independently. Are you ready to open your heart and home for 18 months to a puppy like Esther? To find out more about becoming a canine companion for Independence Puppy Raiser or about other volunteer opportunities, visit cci.org or call 1-800-572-BARK. Raise a puppy, change a life. You can make a world of difference in the life of a person with a disability. And welcome back to the Quadcast. Again, I am your host and chief bloviator, John McAlevey. Well, without further ado, I want to welcome in our guest today. Uh, I talked about him in the introduction, and I must apologize for not having him on sooner. But uh, Bill Purdy, welcome to the show, my friend. Hey, Johnny, good to hear from you, and certainly uh, my pleasure to be here. Well, you know what I usually like to do with with all of my shows is, uh, because we know that these spinal cord injuries are not, you know, who we are. They don't define who we are and who we were. And so what I like to do is sort of get like a bird's eye view and check under the hood on all the folks that I have on. So why don't you tell us where you grew up and what your childhood was like? Sure. Uh, I grew up here in Livingston, New Jersey, where I still reside. Uh, childhood. Growing up, uh, I was the child of uh, two great supporting parents. They, um, you know, I had Coach Purdy for a father who was um, at the town uh, at the high school. He was the uh, one of the football coaches for the football team. Uh, they w- went to and um, a couple of state championships. Uh, he was also the head coach of the local hockey team. So uh, the high school hockey team, they won some state championships and some. Uh, some other, uh, some other great trophies. Um, you're being kind, was... Bill. He's a legend <laughs> uh, in the coaching so, ranks. Yes, he is. So mom was, uh, you know, a stay at home mom. She was also a substitute teacher and she also had some part-time jobs throughout, but she was more of a, of a, a nurturing, uh, mother to take care of me, my brother and I. Um, but I grew up, uh, in a locker room, you know, for all intent and purposes, you know, I was the mascot. I was the young you know, I was the coach's son who would you know be crawling around under the bench at South Mountain Arena, you know, while the guys were in in between periods. So uh, my vocabulary became very mature very quickly um, <laughs> for for that age. Uh, but I was I was the rink rat kid. Um, I knew every inch of South Mountain Arena and most of the arenas in Jersey. Uh, when football season came rolling around, I was always on the sidelines or throwing a football out in the you know, in the adjacent fields with the rest of the kids who were playing, basically kill the guy with the ball. So, mm-hmm. um, so yeah, so my brother and I grew up, uh, very outdoors, very physical, very, uh, uh, rough and tough kids. And, uh, you know, that 
goes on to this day, I think. Yeah. You know, in my intro, Bill, I said that you and I have a lot in common. And one of the things that uh, that we both have in common is a love of the Jersey Shore. Why don't you tell us about, you know, not only your family's place there, but some of the things that you used to do with sailing all around the world? <laughs> sure. Um yeah, we've been a beach family. Obviously, I just mentioned about dad being a school teacher and mom being um, being home with us. And ever since I was born, uh, we have been Jersey Shore people. You know, uh, before we my folks had a place of their own, um, my father's parents had a place down, believe it or not, at a campground down in South Jersey, down by Avalon. So every weekend, um, I was a beach baby down there, and then. Uh, Back in 81, 82, my mother's uh, parents both passed away within a few months of each other. So um, her brother and and she decided to pool their estate money together and they bought a house on LBI. So now instead of uh, going to Avalon every weekend, we now had a place on LBI. And that was back in uh, 82 we started. And, um, you know, dad being a school teacher, as soon as school season was over, um, you know, we were down at the beach, you know, you for were on all the Parkway summer. South, Parkway South, lock up the house, you know, tie up the dog. Let's get out of here. And we'd go down to, um, LBI and, you know, that started a whole nother second life for me. So I had, you know, all the people I knew through the school year up here in North Jersey. And then, um, you know, we'd head down the parkway, we'd be on LBI and I'd turn into a piney for, you know, for most of the months down there throughout <laughs> the year. And obviously when school started again, you know, we were still down there every weekend, you know, throughout the entire year. Right. But, um, yeah. So I am still down there uh, often. You know, I have a business down there that a photography business down there that is uh, just going through the roof right now. So yes. I'm down there um, very often doing a lot of portrait work down there. And uh, believe it or not, you know, I, I live most of the time in North Jersey, but my meat and potatoes comes from LBI. Yeah. And we will get to that photography business a little bit later. I, I promise that. Bill, talk to me now. Um, we're at Livingston High School. Uh, you're starting to figure out what, um, you know, an adult Bill Purdy is, if there is such a thing. Uh, I know <laughs> we think of ourselves as kids, but what sort of is the plan as as you're heading uh, towards your, you know, junior, senior year in high school? Where are you thinking that you're going to wind up with your life? Yeah. Um, well, that was interesting. Um, just before getting into high school, I was uh, very athletic. You know, I was... Uh, I was on the football team. I was on the wrestling team. I was on the track team through junior high school. And um, I suffered what we could consider at this point to be my first spinal cord injury. Wow. Um, it it wasn't something that was uh, overly, you know, discussed about, in, you know, in my history, even since I've known you. But I'm sure you've caught wind of that. But I, uh, on LBI, I had a water skiing accident when I was uh, 14. Wow. And I hit the water hard enough that I was I was paralyzed in the water. I could just barely feel a little bit of what was going on. Uh, but I was knocked unconscious. So when I started coming to, I felt some water splashing me in the face. And I was I knew I was in the water. I knew I had a life jacket on and I felt very strange. I felt like I had been knocked unconscious, which I, I guess I was. Yeah. And then I started yelling at someone to stop splashing me in the face with the water. And then when I came to and my eyes were open, I started to realize that it was my my arms uh, were um, sort of flailing Were they were just flailing. Wow. And I couldn't I couldn't feel them. I didn't have control of them. Um, and I looked down and I saw this, you know, and obviously that's that's a shocker. So um, thankfully, I had a life jacket on um, and that kept me afloat. My dad and my brother were in the boat that was pulling me on, on the water skis and they 
came alongside and I said, look, I, I can't feel anything. I'm, I'm a little, you know, something's wrong here. And they yanked me up and dropped me down in the bottom of the boat. And within a few minutes, getting me back to the dock, right? I started to regain feeling. I had real severe pins and needles feeling and, uh, and couldn't really figure out what was going on. And within a half an hour, I was sitting up and I was uh, starting to stand up. And Good to go you know, again? Said, <laughs> wow. You know, let's get back in the boat. Now, I, I, I realized it right there that, you know, obviously something was very wrong. Something was mm-hmm. serious. Um, so for the next few months, I had a bunch of x-rays and went into New York City and had, at the time, they had um, uh, motion CAT scans or motion x-rays, which... They were able to take a look at the inside of the the neck structure, the the vertebrae in the neck, and realize that I had a number of different congenital defects uh, in the upper spinal column. Wow! And we saw congenital fusion through um, C1 through five, and we saw congenital fusion and stenosis uh, pretty much most of the way down through the mid thoracics. And uh, you know, we realized right then and there that um, you know my neck wasn't. Um, sharing the workload the vertebrae weren't sharing the the workload to move at certain angles and that put me at high risk for um for spinal cord damage yeah um structurally the bones were fine from the water skiing accident it was just that shock so getting back to the question about you know what did that do for high school and all that well i just went from being you know this this athlete and um I had already held a, a school record for in track and field for shot put. And, you know, I was really enjoying football. I loved hitting people. Um, you were a big dude, right, Bill? Give us this, you was, know, your dimensions. Yeah. What, what were you? I was. I, I was wrestling at the, um, in eighth grade, I was wrestling in the 175 pound weight class, which was heavyweight. Okay. Um, so most of the kids, you know, on the wrestling team, you know, were 110, 115, 125 pounds. And here I am coming in this bulking 175 in eighth grade. So, <laughs> um, yeah, so I, I was a big guy mm-hmm. and uh, I was athletic. I was built real well. Uh, and then we found out that, you know, they, you know, the school system would no longer even let me take gym, you know. So yeah. they they gave, you know, for my gym class, they'd sit me down in the corner and give me like a knock hockey board by myself. <laughs> I mean, I'd say, what am I supposed to do with this? Yeah. Doesn't so play well that, with others, right? No, it doesn't. So that started a little bit of anxiety and angst and, you know, the hormones of youth were kicking in. So I became at that point, you know, pretty rebellious, pretty pissed off at everybody. And, sure. uh, you know, that turned me into a different version of myself. You know, I was always, I always loved music and I always loved the heavier side of music. So, you know, the hair started getting grown and, uh, you know, the the jean jackets, you know, were getting worn and, you know, before you knew it. I was friends with not only the the athletic you know jock community, but now I'm also friends with all the the Rat Pack and the uh, and the degenerate side of of the uh, social groups at school. So the fringies, right? Yeah, and and none of these people were bad people. It no. was all really an appearance thing, which is really kind of I think we've all realized that now. But right. So so high school turned me from being um, the path that we all saw happening, which was going to be the football, athletic, and the scholarships and all that suddenly took a turn and for you know for a young kid who's really just starting to stretch his legs to figure out where he's going in life to be throwing that kind of curveball um yeah was was strange and no um yeah no and doubt. it was also 
you know, because we all know what this interview is for, you know, that was also a precursor of things to come. Too, sure. So. so basically you were a spinal cord injury waiting to happen. And so uh, why don't we fast forward to the day uh, where it does happen? What are the specifics, Bill? Um, where were you? Where did it happen? The time of day? Uh, take us through the day that really changed your life. Okay. Um, yeah, it was a rough one. Um, there's no doubt about that. I was, uh, at the time I was, uh, head of security and manager of a, a pretty big nightclub down on LBI, a place called the catch. And, uh, I loved it. It was, you know, the place to go. It was, you know, the premier club down there. So I had been out sailing earlier in the morning. Um, we have a pretty big sailboat, so we were out sailing uh, early afternoon. I didn't have to be at work until four or five in the afternoon. Uh, so yeah, we had some drinks on board while we were sailing and I ended up uh, driving down to work and I worked, I don't know, I think it was probably about uh, 12 hours. Um, and that's, it doesn't sound like hard work, but it is. Sure. And uh, I had been you know, drinking down there while I was working, which was kind of, you know, the nightclub thing to do. It's, you know, you're surrounded by drunk people. So absolutely. You know, so, when in Rome, right? Funny, funny you say that because it was absolute. I was drinking that night. But, <laughs> um, yeah, you know, I it was just a regular night for me. And I ended up, um, you know, I wasn't that bad, but, uh, you know, I had a, a few drinks in me. I was with um, the girl I was seeing at the time uh, was at the club that night. And, you know, we had been seeing each other for a while. So uh, she came home with me and our house is right on the bay there. So we jumped in the bay and swam around for a little bit. Uh, at the time there was smoking allowed in the club. So I wanted to get all the spilt booze and all the cigarette smell off me. So we jumped in the bay and then I told her that I was going to go jump up in the pool. We had a pool that was right next to the bay there. So Mm -hmm. she said she was going to swim around for a few more minutes. And, uh, I went up and, uh, had my fateful moment. Um, I walked up to the outside of our above ground pool. Um, and like I've done a thousand times before, I just sort of propped myself up on the side of it, you know, about waist height with my feet off the ground and went to sort of flop in. Mm-hmm. And obviously my judgment was off. So when I leaned forward, I teeter-tottered a lot quicker than I thought I, you know, than I normally do. And I ended up doing a pogo stick and uh, getting and just shooting myself straight down to the bottom and landed, you know, smack dab on my face mm-hmm. uh, and just folded myself in half. Mm. And uh, was it sort uh, of that same feeling that you felt uh, a, a few years earlier when you were water skiing or was it completely different? It was completely different. Uh, and what was really interesting was the fact that as soon as it happened, I didn't feel anything. I didn't know I was injured. In fact, I hit the bottom so hard that I don't know if it knocked me out or just stunned me enough to realize that like, you know, it's one of those moments where it was, you know, ow, you know, wow, yeah. that, that was, a, that was a heavy one. What, the, what the hell just happened? Yeah. So I was laying on the bottom. And I was licking my teeth just to make sure all my teeth were there because I just, you know, I just smacked my face pretty bad. And I could mm. taste some blood in my mouth from, from, you know, ripping up my, my, the inside of my lip a little bit. So, um, laying there, I, I said, all right, well, I'm bleeding. I need to figure out how bad I'm hurt. So let me push myself up to the top and stand up and take a look around. And I opened my eyes and I could see the bottom of the pool right there. And I went to push myself up off the bottom and I could see my arms floating out in front of me. And nothing. Yeah. There, there was, the, I could see them floating there. I could see the reflections of the water, you know, dancing across the bottom of the pool. And uh, I couldn't 
there was no movement from the arms. Uh, I, I couldn't feel them. Jeez. I was floating. I was floating in zero gravity. Um, it was a very uh, surreal feeling. Um, I didn't realize that I couldn't feel anything because being underwater, it does something also to the sensory. Uh, it was a very odd sensation, but that the, the, the mystery of what just happened suddenly became panic because all right, I'm at the bottom of the pool. The girl I'm with is in the bay, you know, yeah. 50 feet away. Right. Um, I'm running out of air. Yep. So um, what went to being curious as to what the hell was going on suddenly turned into, all right, you know, I only have, you know, a very short amount of time left with consciousness. So <laughs> exactly. So I need to get to the, I need to get to the top and yeah. I couldn't. And, right. uh, you know, I tried moving those arms and I could see him floating right in front of my face, but, uh, I ended up, um, getting to the end of my lung full of air and realizing that, you know, I was very carefully listening for the vibrations of the footsteps on the deck above me and I heard nothing. So mm. just instinctively, I, I screamed, I yelled for help. And, uh, you know, as soon as I did that, it was just bubbles underwater that nobody on earth heard. Right. And uh, I sucked in a, a lung full of air and coughed it immediately right back out and sucked in a second lung full. And that was that. That was that. that Jeez. That was that. And then, so, so tell me what happens next. I mean, you've got everybody on the edge of their seat now. Obviously, <laughs> uh, you are we're still with us today. So tell us how you made it out of the pool. Yeah. Um, well, you know, I don't know how, nobody knows how long I was down there. So that makes it a little interesting. Uh, but uh, the girl I was with, uh, Bethany, decided, uh, I guess she was done swimming down there and she jumped into the pool with me. And uh, said, I, I think I remember her saying that she saw me on the bottom and thought I was just sort of playing or, you know, just sort of whatever it might be. But then after, you know, a, a bunch of moments, I think she realized that there was something wrong. So she... Yeah. Uh, she scooped me up and realized that, uh, you know, I wasn't breathing. I wasn't conscious oh, and whatnot. So, uh, on her behalf, you know, she, at that point she had saved my life, you know, and she started screaming and yelling for help. And, um, I slowly started to come to, and I heard her yelling for, uh, I believe my mother and, uh, you know, I saw some lights getting turned on and, uh, you know, the next thing you know, I, I see, spinning lights or actually let me go back one second um i do remember her rolling me kind of on my side and draping my arms over the side of the pool she's like i'm going i'm going inside to get help right you know i said no you can't let go of me i'm gonna you know i had just survived drowning i said i'm just gonna slip right back down and end up on the bottom of the pool again so i said you, you can't leave me uh, mm -hmm. you, you can't let go of me or else i'm gonna go under so anyway she eventually got uh my parents attention and uh my father, who didn't even come out to see what was going on, but heard the panic in her voice, and he dialed nine one one without even coming out to see, um, you know, what what the reason was. But sure. he knew it was bad enough that we needed help. So sure. I was in a very strange place. I was half conscious, and uh, you know, the next thing I remember, I remember seeing um, spinning, you know, red lights parked in front of the house, and I remember hearing firemen, you know, stripping off their clothes and jumping in the pool with me. And, uh, and before you knew it, there was, you know, 15 people in the pool with me, some of which, some of which I knew these guys. And, um, you probably you know, had served them, er, you know, earlier in the week or earlier that <laughs> summer at the catch, right? I'm sure. No, I, I, I knew the, the head of the EMS team down there is, uh, was a friend of my father's. Okay. And, uh, I knew him through, um, 
through the Surf City Yacht Club, and I knew his daughter, and uh, he knew us. And to look down and knowing that he was in the pool with me um, was both frightening and also comforting at the same time because right. I knew I knew why he was there, but I was glad that he was there. You know? yeah. So, yeah. Um, so once I they scoop people, once they scoop you up, Bill, is it right from there? Are you are you off to the uh, the trauma hospital? Is that right where you go? Yeah, they, uh, you know, I was still in the pool and they were still getting me out of the pool and I saw a helicopter flying over the house. And, you know, that, that was a real eye opener because to, to know, I know exactly why that helicopter's there. And, uh, you know, they were scooping me up and strapping me down and, uh, I didn't, I didn't know what was going on. You know, I was sure. so confused at that point. I was so scared and, and mesmerized by this, this lack of sensation and this feeling of zero gravity and, um, so yeah, so they, we, I'll, I'll make it real short. I mean, they yeah. threw me on a board, they threw me in an ambulance to drive me a block and a half away. Um, and yeah, they loaded me up in a helicopter, which, uh, my understanding was I had a tough time even finding a helicopter because a number of them were busy at this time at three 30 in the morning. But, um, I ended up on a state police helicopter, I ended up on North star. Okay. So North Star flew me from Long Beach Island to Camden to uh, Cooper Medical Center, where um, I'll never forget when I showed up in the in the trauma room, they released the the head restraint from around my head and there was still water coming out of my ears. So oh, um, just just to show you how much those those helicopters and those medevacs are uh, lifesavers, um, I went from being, you know, paralyzed and drowned in a pool to being lying on a on a stretcher in a trauma center and I was still wet. So um, that's how fast you know, those guys move, huh? You know what? It was, you know, for what they do, they're lifesavers. So, they you know, without, are. without that sort of service, you know, people, you know, unfortunately aren't going to make it with no. that service. You know, people hit the trauma center within that golden hour and, and, you know, you're saving lives. Yeah. Now, Bill, once you're at the hospital, any surgeries, did you have to undergo uh, any surgeries? Were you in a halo? Um, what was the, uh, you know, the immediate aftermath once you get there? Well, um, surgeries, yes. Uh, after about four hours of MRIs, they realized, um, number one, I needed a Greenfield filter. And, and that is a, uh, a titanium um, screen, which they put into the, um, I believe is the inferior vena cava, which uh, is basically the joining location where your two femoral arteries that come up out of your out of your legs, um, they put a filter in there to prevent blood clots from migrating up into my, you know, into my lungs and into my heart. Wow. So, um, halo, no, because if you remember, I had a congenital condition, which, um, which weakened my neck, which I gave me areas where I needed to, um, where I needed to, uh, you know, th that area was, was weakened. Mm -hmm. So the long story was I didn't need surgery because structurally, even laying there, um, my neck was in exactly the same shape as it was before I even went into the pool. So okay. I didn't break any bones. All the damage was done to the spinal cord itself. Mm -hmm. And was it a bruise? What was the, what was the you know, uh, diagnosis? What did the doctors tell you had happened to your spinal cord? Well, that's exactly what they talked about was the fact that I suffered... Um, Basically, yes, a bruise, a contusion to the uh, to the to the spinal cord. At what level? This was at C five uh, C five six. Okay. So, um, what happened was because of the fact that my vertebrae don't share the workload and they were all fused together at the same spot, 
my neck only moves at one spot, which is at C5-6. So when I hit the bottom of the pool, instead of those vertebrae all sharing the angles and the, the workload of bending the neck, my neck only moved in one spot. Okay. And that basically caused a kink. That, I mean, for just to make it you know, easy to understand, it caused a kink in the spinal cord for that brief second that I hit the bottom of the pool. Mm-hmm. It yanked it, pinched it, kinked it, and then... Uh, you know, immediately released. And I was right back, you know, structurally, the the neck was right back to the same shape as it's always been. Right. Um, The problem was now I had, you know, severe contusion, bruising and bleeding in the, in the already uh, narrowed um, spinal column because of the spinal stenosis. Yeah. Yeah. And now let's fast forward, Bill. I know, as you said, you grew up in Livingston. Uh, We all know that Kessler Institute is, is in West Orange. First of all, what did you know about the building and the place beforehand? Had you ever been there? Um, and then take us through your stay as an inpatient. Um, I had been there. Um, surprisingly enough, my grandfather was there as a uh, an inpatient, not for, not for very long, but he had, um, I believe, if I if I'm remembering correctly, he had. Um, I'm not sure if he had diabetes or what he may have had, but I know that he had a um, an amputation when he was reaching the end of his life. He um, he needed to uh, have one of his legs below the knee. So he went to Kessler. Uh, I think he was there as an inpatient for the first, uh, I don't even know how long. I was pretty young. I would think it was only about 10 when this was, but he ended up... Um, going there for outpatient. I remember him going as outpatient. So I went at times to watch him work and learn how to use this new prosthetic. So I had been there before. Okay. So now talk about, I mentioned in the intro that you and I share a lot of things that we have a lot in common. And one of them (laughs) is uh, room 124, bed one. Um, I was in that bad boy uh, back in 1992, and you uh, followed suit a couple of years later. Um, How much of your um, athletic prowess as a young man, a big, strapping, strong guy, uh, how much of that helped you when you got into therapy and you had to, you know, try and regain what you had lost? None of it. Um, (laughs) Well, that's the truth. Um, You know, when I showed up there at being 24 years old, I was in what I would easily consider to be the best shape of my life. Um, You know, during the summer, I was, you know, I was on a, on a motorcycle race and motocross hard. And I was practicing almost every day. Um, you know, I was running, I was rollerblading. I was, I was solid. And, um, when I showed up after the injury, you know, being completely paralyzed, one of the very first things that happened within the first two, three, four weeks I was there, um, I lost about 85 pounds. Wow. And that was all muscle and, you know, the atrophy kicked in and, you know, I wasn't moving. I wasn't, um, you know, at that, when I first showed up, they couldn't even sit me up straight without me passing out. So, um, you know, being in good shape beforehand sounds like it would be a benefit to, you know, to help you aid in recovering from something like this. If I was moving, if I was able to, you know, have some sort of movement, that would have been great. But because of the fact that, you know, these muscles were no longer firing, um, all that muscle mass and all that strength and conditioning um, just disappeared. And just, it was amazing how quickly it went. It was, um, I'd look in the mirror and I, you know, almost daily I'd see a change and you'd see, you know, the structure of my face would change. And um, 
you know, it, it wasn't a happy time. No. So you basically had to learn how to do everything all over again. I remember when I met you, um, you were in a power chair. Now, when I was there, they put me in a manual chair. And because my legs were working, I had to walk myself everywhere in the power, uh, in, in the manual chair. All my friends were speeding by me in the hallway, you know, beep, beep, beep in their, in their power chairs. How, how soon, um, because I mean, now you walk like a champ. I mean, you've been walking and, uh, and, and doing this forever. How soon um, after you got to Kessler did your legs start to come back? Because again, I remember you initially in a power chair. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I showed up there, remember, uh, completely paralyzed. So even the power chair was a month after I began going there. So for the first, uh, for the first month that I was there, I was on a gurney. Um, and they would take me back and forth to uh, to therapy on a gurney. And the reason being is because, you know, me being the accident-prone guy that I was, um, I actually showed up um, with my spinal cord injury. I also had a fractured coccyx because oh, um, I had gone down a flight of stairs and, and broke my little tailbone. So um, when they did try to sit me in a chair, uh, the very first thing I would do uh, would be to pass out right. um, because, you know, I had been vertical, I'm sorry, horizontal for so long that every time they try to sit me up, my blood pressure would just tank out. And yeah. So um, that's how therapy started. It wasn't, you know, how soon before you were walking again. It was how soon before you were able to, to sit up be, mm. without passing out. Yeah. So that's the one thing they miss in the movies is the fact that you don't just, you know, get wheeled into therapy in a wheelchair and stand up and, you know, in the parallel bars, there's, you know, there's a long story that leads <laughs> yeah. up to that. Right. But Hollywood, um, getting, right? Yeah, but you know, getting back to your question is how how long did my legs start moving? I mean, I know that's a very important question that a lot of people ask. It's like how long before you were walking again? Um, um, it's really I really need to reiterate the fact that the walking was down towards the end of the stay. You know, to get there was first sitting up without passing out, and then it was be able to sit up and put your arms out on either side of you. You know, and just try yeah. to have your torso support your own weight sitting up. For, you know. Uh, unassisted. And then it was, you know, see if you can lean over to the side on your elbow and then sit back up straight again. You know, so it's those little things, uh, those little achievements that were really the the main focus of the therapy. It wasn't, let's get you up and in the parallel bars and walking against to, to yeah. make a good movie. Let's get you so your core strength is able to support your upper body and let's get your arms moving so you can have something to help support yourself. So. Um, to answer the original question, you know, how long was it before I was walking again? You know, it was, I think it was towards the end of my third month there yeah, um, is yeah. when, is when I actually started, you know, standing up from the chair and you would stand up and you would stand for, you know, five seconds and then lower yourself back down again, Yeah. you know, and then stand again and maybe, you know, lean over on one leg and hold yourself up on, you know, one leg. So it was probably about three months before I actually was standing you know walking was again down the road a little bit but standing and doing stuff like that was about three months we were lucky you know you never want to say you're lucky to have a spinal cord injury but we were lucky to have hours when we did because nowadays the stay at at rehab places is a heck of a lot shorter uh than when you and i were there i know i was there for uh, at least two and a half to three months. I know I spent as an inpatient and then did many, many months as an outpatient. How how long were you an inpatient? Um, I think I was inpatient about four months. Um, again, you know, like you just mentioned with the stays being shorter, it's um, it really is um, 
rather despicable to to think about what the insurance companies have done to uh, the rehab for you know severely injured patients. You know, I, I, I've when I was there, I saw people that were being rehabbed to um, to get them independent and healthy again. Whereas now, you know, you see people that are going to rehab for as long as their insurance deems it necessary. You know, yeah. it doesn't matter if you're healthy or if you're self sufficient or if you're safe. It's just simply well we have a chart and it says that your injury says we'll pay for this much. And after that, you're on your own. So right. um, I don't have a lot of respect for the changes that have happened when it comes to insurance dictating people's recoveries. But um, yes, we were lucky to have, you know, um, thorough treatment for our injuries, which yeah, absolutely is beneficial. You know, could, could I have done a lot of that on my own? I don't know. Who right. knows? You right. know, I'm, I was lucky to have some really great, you know, some great team members working up with me. Absolutely. And you made friendships that um, this this whole thing comes full circle because a lot of the, the folks that you made friendships with um, became colleagues. I mean, let's why don't you tell everybody about uh, at some point, not only you left as an inpatient and maybe did some outpatient therapy, but you also became an employee at Kessler. Um, take us through how that came about and what were some of your duties as uh, as a worker at Kessler Institute? Sure. Um, yeah, it, it really did come full circle and it, I was very fortunate to, uh, to follow the path that I did. And like you mentioned, I finished my inpatient rehab and, um, I worked in outpatient rehab. I shouldn't say work, but I was a, I was a patient in outpatient and I was there for, I don't know, uh, 10 months, maybe a little less than a year of doing outpatient, which was three days a week. Um, and one of the things which was um, not a delay, but that happened slowly was uh, my fine motor movements with my fingers and with my hands and, you know, my balance wasn't perfect and all that. Um, you know, my walking still needed some help. I'm, I was still dragging a foot. Right. Um, but one of, I remember one of the tasks that I was given from my occupational therapists was to work on wheelchairs with little screws and nuts and bolts and tools. Yeah. And it was great because I was mechanically inclined. I'd, I'd always done a lot of, I mentioned my motorcycle racing before, so I've been taking apart motorcycles and putting them back together. So they trusted me. They would give me a toolbox and say, you know, here's a wheelchair, you know, take it apart, put it back together again. Go to town. So, yeah. <laughs> and, you know, what, what sounds, you know, as just sort of, a, you know, busy work was to me, I understood why they were giving it to me. I understood the task at hand and what it was meant to be doing, um, you know, because I, at that point, you know, as a patient, you become educated. You understand that you're, you know, you're working on your sensory um, skills of being able to feel the nuts and the bolts and the, and whatnot. And, um, you know, dexterity and, and standing up next to a wheelchair and working on bending over, you start to realize that, you know, you know what the therapist is, sees in what you're doing. So it wasn't just taking apart a wheelchair. It was actually working on, you know, a number of different skills, you know, that you needed in everyday life. So, to make a long story short, um, my outpatient therapy ended and I was about to be discharged. And at this point, you know, I hadn't worked in, you know, a year, 14 months. I didn't have a job. I, right. I said, all right, well, you know, you guys are discharging me. Let's have, you know, we're all very happy about that, but I got nothing to do. Can I come back? You know, can I come back tomorrow and help out? Maybe I could push some people around. Maybe I could take, you know, I could help adjust the wheelchair. You know, I've been taking apart wheelchairs now for four months. You know, sure. maybe, yeah. you know, maybe, maybe I could help you guys. So that way, you know, it takes the burden off of you. You could be working with other patients. I could be, you know, I don't mind volunteering. So 
I did. I volunteered and I did that for the next year or so. I think it was even more than a year. I was a volunteer there. Um, and obviously I had gained a whole bunch of friendships with everybody in both inpatient, outpatient, all the nursing staff, all the, the maintenance staff, you know, everybody there. So you were family bill. Yeah. And, um, so one thing led to another, and I know that uh, a woman in inpatient occupational therapy who was working as an aide had left, and I knew that there was an opening, and uh, you know, a, a number of the therapists and the managers in the therapy department said, well, you know, it looks like you're not leaving anytime soon, so we might as well give you a job. <laughs> so, um, yeah. So I ended up uh, as an employee of Kessler Institute for Rehabilitation up in uh inpatient occupational therapy as an aide. And I got to work with um, other spinal cord injury patients and work with um, the wheelchair clinics, the seating and positioning clinics um, that they had in order to customize systems for people to sit in. So that way they were safe and they weren't going to develop any sort of injuries or sores or anything like that. And, um, you know, one thing led to another, and I ended up working there for, uh, it was eight and a half years after that. Is that right? I didn't realize it was that long, eight and a half years. It, w- it was, yeah. I mean, some there's certainly times where I could say I counted every single day of that, every minute of that, and, you know, <laughs> shook my head. But, sure. you know, in, in hindsight, you look back at it and say that was really, you know, that was an incredible time, you know, to be involved with that, you know, and, and to bring it full circle like that, to show up, you know, paralyzed and and scared and, you know, mystified as to what's going on. Yeah. And then, you know, eight, nine, 10 years later, you know, you're walking around with a, with a name tag on and, you know, you know, amazing, you know, yeah. You know, and I have to tell you that not only were you, um, a huge asset and a big help, um, doing all those things again, as you mentioned, uh, it was helping you improve your fine motor stuff. Uh, and you were still gaining, um, you know, stuff back from the injury, but also you were a role model for those people who were sitting in the chair thinking, Oh my gosh, this guy was in my seat like a two years ago. And, uh, this is something that I can sort of aspire to and, and I can get back to life and I can work and I can do some things. Yeah. It might not be the way it used to be, but look at this guy. He has certainly made it full circle. Uh, and not only that, but you mentioned the friendships that, uh, that you and I have made over the years. I know, uh, two of them in particular are, uh, our OT friends, uh, Miss Dawn Texas and also Karen Cameron, our, um, beloved friends and have been for, uh, forever that we still get together with to this day. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, we're looking at, uh, 27 years, uh, for me being involved in that little, uh, that little, our quad squad, as we call it. Yeah. Um, but, um, you know, I, I want to go back just a moment to when you mentioned being a role model. And uh, I certainly took a lot of pride in um, having that connection with patients, but it was also a catch-22. Um, we certainly ran into some issues uh, with patients over the years who um, would find out about my injury, would find out about, you know, how severe it was and see the recovery, you know, for for all intent and purposes, seeing me from the outside, you don't really see much wrong with me. Yeah. Um, not knowing that I can't run, I have to be careful on stairs. I can't feel too much. Um, but we found that there were some times where patients would say, you know, we want, you know, his doctor, we want to, we want his medications, we want his therapists, you know, and we want to find out what he did because, you know, you know, we don't, we don't want our, our son or our daughter to be paralyzed anymore. And we see that, you know, he's, he's you know, not, yeah. he's cured. Yeah. yeah. So 
we're going to go against all the advice from our current doctors and therapists. And we don't care. We just want to, we want what he had. Mm -hmm. And we found uh, over the years that that sometimes caused some pretty um, unique um, problems, which um, we had to be very, very careful with. So there were times where I had to be very vague about my injury, about my recovery. Um, and rightfully so, because, you know, just I, I can think of a couple of cases offhand where it really started to become a, a serious dilemma. Yeah. And um, well, as they so, say, Bill, they tell this early on, right? No two injuries are the same. I know one of my uh, one of my really good friends who I grew up with, he uh, is a C3-4, you know, same as me, central cord, and he's never going to get out of his wheelchair. And he looks at me and I go over to his house and it's kind of like, you know, I get the puppy dog eyes and I almost feel yeah. bad that I'm walking around. But, you know, it just goes to show you that none of these things are the same. And it, there's so much that goes into it that uh, that goes way over our head. And it's, uh, you know, it's our bodies and how they heal and, you know, timing and how old you are. It's just uh, so I could see how some of those people would look at you and say, I want to be like him, but it just was not going to happen. Yeah, it was tough. It was definitely tough. Now, I know that you are involved in a lot of different things. I know you like to go camping with your friends. I know you like to put those potato cannon things together. You've showed us over <laughs> the years. You, you're a musician. You used to uh, travel with bands and do the, uh, do the sound and whatnot. But I know one thing that's really near and dear to you, and you touched on it in the beginning, is photography. First of all, where did that love of taking photos come from? And tell us all about Fairwinds Photography, your business. Sure. Uh, photography started uh, back in junior high school. I was uh, at the time I was in junior high. I was also in Boy Scouts. Uh, you just mentioned all my camping and stuff. So there's always a little bit of Boy Scout left in me, but um, <laughs> got introduced to 35 millimeter cameras and noticed that the school also had a camera club with a dark room and and all the facilities uh, right there in the school. So, you know, I started taking pictures, but, you know, I wasn't good at it, but I love the fact of going into a dark room and seeing stuff develop off of, you know, you know, off of a piece of film and developing the film and printing it out on paper and seeing how things worked in the real world with, with film and whatnot. So I was fascinated. So I kind of, without asking, inherited my, my father's 35 millimeter camera and just began, you know, firing through rolls of film, you know, yeah. wherever I went, you know, I had my camera with me, uh, or my dad's camera. And, um, you know, I was spending every penny I could come across on, on film and getting it developed. And, you know, I still have most of the, the most of the pictures I took and, you know, I have envelopes and envelopes and envelopes full of just garbage pictures, just horrible stuff. <laughs> um, but I loved it because every once in a while you'd come across something that you just stop at and look at and say, wow, look at that. And you'd show somebody else and they would say, wow, look at that. And just that, you know, the satisfaction of, you know, shooting 500 pictures and getting two or three keepers out of it was, was wonderful. Right. Um, so that's kind of how it started back there when I was 12, 13 ish years old. And I've always had a camera somewhere near me ever since. And, uh, I would say about, I, I'm just guessing here at, at 12, 15 years ago, I started kind of taking a more serious side of it and saying, maybe I could, you know, sell a print of this. Maybe I could get a print of that. And then, uh, before you know it, I ended up getting a, a digital camera as a gift, um, I shouldn't say a digital camera because I, I had a couple of digital cameras back when they first came out and they were garbage. But yeah. um, after getting married, my wife had um, given me uh, a DSLR, you know, digital camera, which, 
at the time, I just, I was in awe. I thought that was the most incredible thing. I got this great new digital camera and it's, you know, five times the resolution of the these other cheap ones. And I learned everything there was to know about the camera. Uh, in fact, I'm sitting here right now looking at one of the instruction books I have oh, on the camera. Really? But, yeah. But, uh, you know, I learned everything there was to know about, you know, shooting manual with a digital camera and getting good results with it. And mm -hmm. then, uh, you know, I got the guts to ask, you know, a family, hey, you know, do you want me to come over and shoot you and your newborn child? And it'll be great. You know, I only want a little bit of money just to make it worth my while. Yeah. And before you know it, I'm shooting people's families and I'm going for walks in parks with people and I'm shooting and making, you know, some really beautiful pictures. And, um, you know, that's, that's without ego. I'm not going to say that, you know, w with an ego twist to it, but it's, you know, you'd actually sit back and like I just mentioned with the film stuff, you look at it and you say like, wow, that mm. really came out better than I expected it to. And you, you present it to the family and they say, wow, you know, that looks great. And you say, and it's a very, so, you know, loves what they're seeing. So, um, over the past 12, 15 years, um, you know, my equipment has certainly upgraded, I would say. Um, I went from an entry-level DSLR, which uh, my wife had given to me, and then, uh, you know, I'm, that was four or five cameras ago, and now I have uh, some of um, Nikon's best equipment. I have uh, a number of um, Nikon's full-frame cameras. I have all the top-of-the-line lenses. I have all sorts of studio lighting and uh and all the software to go with it. So I went from being kind of, you know, a newbie into the digital world now to uh, I'm actually a certified member of Nikon Professional Services. Wow. And, and I can attest to that, everybody, because as I mentioned in the intro, Bill, uh, truth be told, is the house photographer for the Eastern Produce Council. So it's great. Not only do I get a chance to see him and catch up, but uh, we get to break bread and uh, have some good meals at some really cool events. And I've seen his equipment and it's in the thousands of dollars. And so, um, yeah, he's a full-fledged photographer. Bill, tell our listeners if uh, they would really like to have you come out uh, and shoot anything, any event that they might be having, how could they get in touch with you? Sure. Well, I have uh, a website, which is www.fairwindsphoto.com. Uh, that contains uh, a number of different galleries and a short story about me, and it has a, some contact information on it. Um, my email address is fairwindsphotoemail at gmail.com. Um, those are the two best ways to get in touch. Uh, I'm going to leave my phone number out of this for now, just so that way, um, you know, if people are interested, they can go to those sites and contact me through there. Um, but at this point I've been shooting, uh, you know, luxury high-end weddings and, uh, large family portraits and also selling a lot of fine art. Um, some of which has been custom stuff where I've actually worked with clients where they've requested a type of shot or a color scheme or a subject in which they're very passionate about. And I'll actually go out and I'll capture those images specifically for them and exclusively for them. So that way, when they go to purchase something from me, if they've requested it, you know, that is unique and it'll only be one of them. So um, trying to uh, really refine my skills and try to get better every day with everything that I do. And at the same point, trying to get that wow from people when they see, you know, the work that I do for them. Well, let me tell you, you get that wow from me because, uh, <laughs> folks, this is someone who had a C5 spinal cord injury, okay? 
Bill Purdy has, you know, remade himself. Um, and you'll, you'll, you can attest. I know it's not easy. I know you do these things pretty much on your own on, on weekends when you're doing weddings and whatnot, you bring your, your children along sometimes, but I mean, you're schlepping this stuff around your own and, and walking is not the easiest thing for you to do. And I know it gets hot and you got to worry about dyslexia and all these things that, you know, your, your regular photographer that's doing weddings and bar mitzvahs and things like that doesn't have to worry about. So, you know, it really is amazing. You might not think that it is, but, uh, my hat is off to you, Bill. I don't know how you do it sometimes as I, I, again, as I said in my intro, sometimes it's almost like you didn't have a spinal cord injury. You just, you know, you, you, wish it away almost and, and just continue on living. And it's, it's really amazing. Oh, much appreciated. Um, you know, that, that spinal cord injury is, is here with me to stay. That's for sure. You know, I still have, you know, aspects of it, you know, you and I have discussed it in the past. We won't get through all the details of it, but even, yeah. even my camera gear is customized. Um, you know, most people would think, well, you know, he picks up a camera and he pushes the shutter button. Well, what happens if you can't feel the shutter button? You know, and your face is pressed up against the back of the camera and you're pushing your finger up and down, which you can't feel mm. uh, moving up and down. But you don't know where the shutter button is, even though you've taken, you know, 75,000 pictures with the same camera. Yeah. Um, I can't feel the shutter button. So I have, you know, I've from the from the girls that we know in OT, you know, I said to myself, well, I need to customize it. I need to make something interesting here. So I cut off a very small disc of Velcro, we'll call it about uh, maybe an eighth of an inch across, mm -hmm. and I've crazy glued it onto my shutter button of, my, of all my cameras. So when I go to take a picture, I drag my finger across the top of the camera until it catches on something. Jeez. And then I know I know that my finger's on the shutter. So even, you know, with every photo shoot I go out to, I'm reminded of the fact that, you know, I still need special adaptations with some things in my life due to that spinal cord injury. So um, sometimes it might be something as simple as a little, you know, piece of Velcro. And other times it might be something as, you know, as as more significant when it comes to saying, you know, I can't run. So, you know, I yeah. can't if I upset a, a beehive, you know, I have to walk away from it as quick as I can. <laughs> yeah. You know, if there's a fire, you know, I have to walk out of a building. I can't run. I can't go up and down stairs very quickly. So those things, after this amount of time of living with the ramifications of that injury, simply yeah. become second nature. Yeah. Last one for me, Bill, and then I'm going to let you go. I really appreciate you coming on. Um, and sure. it's it's one that I ask of all of, uh, all of my guests who have uh, unfortunately had an SEI. And that is, if I could snap my fingers right now. And you would be completely whole again, perfectly able-bodied. What is the first thing that you would do? And keep it clean. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, if, if that's the case, I draw a complete blank. <laughs> uh, but no, in all seriousness, um, one of the things I think, uh, there's two things I think that I always regret not being able to do again. And uh, one of which is being able to run. Um, I would love to be able to shed some of this weight and to be able to just feel the actual motion of, of burning again yeah. um, and not be, you know, dragging my foot uh, back behind me and tripping over my, my big toe all the time. Uh, and the other you mentioned earlier about me with my musicianship would be to be able to pick up some of um, my guitars and basses and be able to have the same skill level and same satisfaction that I used to get from, from banging out some, you know, some, some great music. Um, uh, on the flip side of that, um, I keep a lot of that inside. I don't mention that to a lot of people, you know, I, I, 
I would love to say, you know, I would do anything to to play my guitar again the way I used to. And then, you know, as you and I both know, you come across people who, um, even as you mentioned, who are, you know, still in a wheelchair, who still can't move, who still can't, still can't feel. Yeah. You know, and if you ask them, you know, what would be the first thing you'd love to do? And you hear answers like, you know, I'd love to be able to feed myself. You know, I'd love to be able to, to wipe my own nose. Yeah. Um, so for me to say I want to run or I want to be able to, you know, play a Metallica song again on my guitar um, is not selfish. But in the scope of things, it's it's uh, it's the deal I made, whether it be with a, um, a deity or whether it be with a, a divine force. But perhaps somebody said, you know, you need to give up guitar and running and I'll give you, you know, most of your function back. You know, are you okay with that? You know, maybe that's the deal that was made. And I'm living with that and I'm I'm okay with that. You're okay with that. And I'm okay with you being one of my one of my dear friends for all these years, Bill. I wanna long long time great friends with you, Johnny. I'm certainly a great friend of mine. Absolutely. I want to thank you for coming on. I want to thank you for for helping me cope, you know, sometimes when things aren't great. I want to thank you for making me laugh and and being a part (laughs) of the Eastern Produce Council and also uh, with our two dear friends Dawn and Karen whom we love uh, joining us for dinner now and then just to just to keep everybody's mind on the straight and narrow so uh, thanks again for everything and I look forward to uh, to more of you in the future and again folks if you're looking uh, for some from some photos Fairwinds photography is something that you need to check out Bill thanks again for coming on you got it Johnny much appreciated I swear the older I get, the more I realize that there is nothing in this world like old friends. Thank you again, Bill, for joining me. Hey, remember when I told you I was swinging for the fences guest-wise? Well, I think I may have just hit one out of the park. I am in the process of scheduling former Penn State Nittany Lion football player and now member of the New Jersey General Assembly, Adam Taliaferro, for an episode. You may recall in September 2000, in just the fifth game of his freshman season, Adams sustained a career-ending spinal cord injury while making a tackle against Ohio State. That is just the beginning of his story, and I look forward to highlighting the rest of it with him. Thank you, Adam, for agreeing to come on. And that will do it for this week's edition. Special thanks again to my awesome engineer, Chris Parapesco, back in the shop at Sound Lounge. Until next time, I am John McAlevey, and I thank you for your time. I don't-